Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm here with the amazing Margaret Lee, Director of User Experience, Community, and Culture at Google. Hey, Margaret. Hi. How are you doing? Good to be here. Thanks. It's nice to have you. I really, I'm really happy that we could uh, coordinate a time to do this and that you're willing to take time out of your busy schedule to, to be on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks. So just to give everyone some context, why don't you tell us about who you are as a person, as a designer, as a as a leader, like what your role is at, uh, at Google and as much as you can say. Sure. I have been in design in one form or another since uh, college where I actually studied architecture, but decided that wasn't really my destiny and kind of dabbled around in graphic design before I eventually got into digital design and eventually user experience. And for most of my career, I guess it would be mostly in user experience first as a practitioner and then as a manager and leader. And in the past four years, I've not been working on traditional like product type of user experience, but rather uh, programs that support UX as a function rather than, and as a discipline and as a community, rather than as like purely as actually the act of uh, doing user experience for a product. So it's been a, a bit of a shift in the past four years. This is the, one of the main reasons why I was really excited to have you on the show. Like you're doing it at a completely different level, but I also went through that same transition from designing things to designing programs and people. So I feel like I could learn a lot from you. I understand that you pitched this role, created this role for yourself. Can you unpack like how this happened, like what, what you were doing leading up to this role and how you were able to create this, this opportunity? Yeah, leading up to it, I had spent the prior nine or so years at Google, you know, because I started back in 2007 doing a more traditional type of UX role, basically building a UX organization over that period of time from like a couple of people to a global, you know, full stack design org with research and prototyping and uh, writing and whatnot. And getting to see like not only all the great product experiences that we we're, were able to, to create, you know, the things that just seem like Star Trek fantasies at the time, but we totally take for granted now. I was lucky enough to have a part in, um, in those things like Street View, which, you know, it's been around for 13, 14 years now, but, you know, it was just a really weird <laughs> technology without an obvious use case at the time. But now you can see it's integrated into like when we could travel, travel planning and just like, you know, virtual tours and things like that. You know, over that period of time, it wasn't just getting to build really great products and build the organization that actually built a lot of the great products, but seeing the evolution of both Google and the UX discipline at Google over that period of time was really interesting to me. We became much more uh, diversified in terms of our function anyway, from being like really generalist coders, like back, you know, early 2000 and aughts, right, to, Mm -hmm. again, being a full stack function of of different disciplines and everything that went with that. I mean, you're really talking kind of like a culture shift at that point that takes place over a long period of time. And I knew just having seen that and having lived it, right, from having been in the trenches, like doing this kind of work, I knew that, like, that was nine years that I witnessed. And I knew that there was probably, like, many decades ahead of potential change and evolution. What if we intentionally paid attention to that instead of just letting things organically happen? So that was kind of the 
the background context in my mind when I was ready to kind of make a change. And I really didn't know what that was. Actually, I thought I was going to just leave Google and kind of figure things out because I assumed that there was no other role for me. Like if I was ready to move on, there was no other role for me. And I was lucky enough to have a boss at the time that was just really great at prompting me, you know, and he prompted the question, well, what would you do if you could, you know, just tell me. And so he encouraged me to just like think something up. And this is what I thought up, you know, it was like somebody should intentionally steer the ship, you know, and I'm not talking about like everything. It's just, it was an aspect of the ship that wasn't, Mm -hmm. nobody was taken care of. And that's like that kind of cultural fabric, you know, that as the company got bigger and UX got decentralized and it was harder to make connections across the company and, you know, within the community, I thought that that's the thing that needs a little intentional investment and all the things that can possibly come out of that when you have a a well-connected community. That's awesome. It must be really amazing to have experienced all of that play out, like, you know, not working at Google, you know, I only have a lens from the outside perspective, but there's definitely like in my mind, like a few phases, like from an external point of view, like Mm -hmm. probably the phase where, you know, most of all of the design and UX was done by engineers. Then it was, you know, then a phase where you could tell that Google was changing. And then like leading up to like the Kennedy initiative, like you could, you could see an enormous investment in design. And now it's like, okay, you know, Google just does design better than the other person. Yeah. You actually hit on a lot of key moments. Like when Lyra became CEO, you know, I actually was talking earlier about that to another group about like that to me represented an inflection point in the evolution of UX at Google, because he shifted the focus to, you know, have more spotlight on the importance of user experience. And he would use language that spoke to basically, you know, the same silo issue that I was just referencing. And so it was encouraging to see that as an acknowledgement, but at the same time, there was no obvious way to quote unquote fix the challenges of silos, you know? Because nobody really is really accountable for that kind of work. Mm-hmm. So, how long have you been in, functioning in this in this role for? For almost four years now. Yeah, when we started, it was really small, and uh, you know, we were framing it as a pilot. We weren't, you know, it, <laughs> we were kind of tucked away. We were experimenting a lot, but what we found was that there was enough work of this nature that was being done somehow or other anyway you know, whether by 20 percenters or bits and pieces in different departments. And all it needed was, like I said, that intentional bringing together of these things that existed in different buckets or silos or whatever. And if you just kind of looked at all the overlapping parts and actually, you know, put a little investment in it, it didn't take that much to get this program off the ground. And if anything, what was really challenging was we could have done so many different things because there's so many different things that play into culture and building community. I mean, some of it is very pragmatic, like how do we define our job ladders or, uh, you know, what's our hiring process, things like that. Things that have owners but actually need the partnership of somebody who understands the function really well. So it was just very easy to get this off the ground, quite frankly, and it's grown since and you know, we're probably around 20 people now, but we're also serving a population that's 
way bigger than us, right? It's like 4,000 globally. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Wow. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions just to try to f- learn about like what, what life is like working, you know, having a focus area like this. First, I'm just curious, like the things that you've done or spearheaded or maybe, you know, someone that reports you've done, like what are some of the things that your group has done that you've been the most excited about? One of the initiatives that we're probably most well known for because it involves the biggest number of people in the community is this um, event called UXU, which stands for UX University. And it's a a peer-to-peer program where we bring together, you know, we invite everybody in UX to come together when we could come together. Last year was actually the 10th edition of it. So before we took it over, it was just grounds up volunteers just pulling this together year after year. And so that was actually like the first program we said we should, we should invest in that because that's amazing. And that just proves like how hungry people are for that um, level of community and sharing and whatnot. And so we built it up production wise quite a bit. And, you know, we had, we were able to program it and curate it. And really, again, it's just like, if you just can put a little bit of intention because it's your actual job instead of it's just everybody's kind of 20% bits, you can do so much more with existing good ideas. So that's, you know, unfortunately we can't come together this year, but last year we had over half the global org attend. So that, that was really great. Yeah. And it's all, like I said, it's all the community giving back to itself. We're just facilitating it and producing it. That's awesome. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but when I had Mike Buzzard on the show, he was telling me about something that was, I don't want to get this wrong, but I had, I got the impression that Google had impact on creating design curriculum directly inside of a university. That's another one. That's amazing. There's many examples. Um, and yes, Mike Buzzard is one of, uh, my co-founders, you know, when we started this and he's still on the team and even before UXCC started, he had started working with the Savannah College of Art and Design on advancing the design curriculum that they had, which was probably, I might be wrong, but I think it was more rooted in maybe like graphic design or commercial design than it was yeah. in user experience, like the type of folks that might get jobs in the industry, right? So he worked with the college on creating a sponsorship program where cohorts of students could work with teams at, at Google um, on real problems and have, you know, the ability to get critiques and be able to pitch. Like they really were able to kind of live what it's like to, to actually solve a problem with user experience and make the pitches and whatnot and build the prototypes. So that's been great. And we just, the company just announced this week that user experience is one of the three professions that Google certification will cover, right? So it's a new program in partnership with Coursera. Our team didn't work on this, but I think, you know, a program like SCAD helped to extend that thinking, right? But it's great because folks can take this much less costly program than going to four-year college and get certified and get trained, get certified. And at least Google will look at that certification as an equivalent to a four-year degree. So, suddenly education and access to this profession is much more accessible. That's a taste of some of the stuff. Is there anything else that you would, you'd like to talk about? 
or do you think that you'd rather talk about what it's like to be in in your shoes every day and the kind of things that you that you deal with every day? Well, yeah, you know, maybe I can just add one more thing about how we think about the programs that we cover because it is so broad when we think about like how do we improve the culture and how do we enable the community to connect and to do great work together. It can be so many different things and it is so many different things. And often I do have a, I struggle with how to like concisely describe what we do. But recently I started thinking about like the way to explain it is if you think about the journey that somebody, an individual might have, a UXer might have, even from before somebody's, you know, even thinking about UX as a career, all the way to they're at Google, they're growing their career, all the different stages and all the different potential points of failure is too strong a term, but like things tend to fall between cracks, like I said, because when we think about the user journey of, of somebody coming into the profession and into Google, it gets handed off from department to department, right? So you might have like somebody working on education and then, you know, you, you get handed off to a staffing person and then when they get, get on board, you're handed off to whoever handles onboarding and then et cetera, et cetera, right? And what we've seen is that it's those in-between moments where like nobody's really accountable for like some key questions or making sure that like folks are continually supported. And so I think about our programs as addressing all those gaps, right? So making sure that the onboarding experience matches the promise of whatever was said during recruiting period, right? And that, because I think that it can be a shock to land at Google and, and be just completely overwhelmed. And so we pay attention to onboarding, things like that. And we pay attention to ongoing development because to us investing in people that are already at Google is certainly should be as important as recruiting. So, there's many different stages, like I said, all the way to just really ultimately what we want to do is connect the community because it is my belief that, you know, you can have a lot of great amenities, but the big differentiator in whether somebody I think will want to stay with a company is do they feel like they belong there, you know, and do they have that, that network that keeps them inspired? Yeah, I guess I'll try to like, I'll try to do this off the cuff, but it's, it feels to me like you're spearheading design challenges where your your stakeholders are like communities, groups of communities, HR departments, hiring managers, all all of that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real ecosystem that we're dealing with because I think we think about like yes, the community is kind of our primary audience, I guess, or users, quote unquote, but really it's it's broader than that because it's the people that also support other programs that we're trying to amplify, you know, so they're kind of our customers as well. You know, our stakeholders who are investing in, in guiding our programs, like, you know, we do have like senior leadership that weighs in, you know, we have to be accountable to somebody, right? You know, they're also people that we have to consider. So yeah, it's a pretty broad ecosystem, but it to me, that's what makes it interesting because you do have to kind of you know, it's just like any other design problem. You have to juggle all the different considerations and, and balance them out. The first time we met over the phone and we were talking about, you know, doing a podcast, you mentioned that you kind of see yourself as a reluctant leader. 
why is that? And, and what do you think it was that sort of tipped the scales for you where you decided, well, someone's got to do this. I'm the right person to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And also like, how do you continue? What do you do for yourself to grow yeah. as a leader? Yeah. Yeah. The whole reluctant leader, I don't know. It was like a, it was almost like a, a light bulb that went on over my head pretty soon after I started this role and started working on programs and thinking about, you know, the issues that, that I cared about. One of them was, you know, this has been an ongoing issue, right? The tech industry and its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, hearing the commitment, but not seeing the change was kind of making me crazy. I had this kind of realization at one point where I said, wow, like, the reason why the reason why we're struggling with this is because you know it's like the definition of insanity you keep doing the same thing but expect a different outcome that's what i feel like the approach to dei is a little bit is that if we say that we want to advance leaders from diverse backgrounds but we never change a definition of what we value in leadership then mm-hmm. how committed are we so that was at the heart of me realizing why i've been so reluctant for so long to be you know considered a leader. You know, I, I think I placed a lot of that onus on myself as like it's imposter syndrome or like, I don't feel like I fit that mold. And what that mold that I was seeing was, was just a very kind of like, it's this brash leader, you know, the Steve Jobs, the Elon Musk, you know, and I don't fit that mold. You know, I'm not a, yeah, (laughs) I'm not somebody that comfortably can assert my point of view, you know, uh, and be okay with collateral damage. And, you know, like there just seemed to be this romanticized notion of leadership as that brash visionary that I just assumed, Oh, well, that's not me. You know, what did you do for yourself when you were kind of on that transition to become a leader? Like, was it, you just kind of jump in? I mean, do you work with coaches? Like, I think a lot of people assume that leaders just kind of like just do it, but I don't know. Like, I think maybe some do, but maybe some don't like me personally. I have like three different coaches that I work with yeah, and they're almost like therapists and I almost couldn't function without them. I don't think a lot of people like realize that there's a lot of, a lot of skills to develop for some people. I I think that speaks to your commitment to figuring this out, right. For yourself is that you're, you are investing so much in your coaches and, the time that you're putting into it. And that's great. I mean, I think that that, like you said, I think everyone comes to it maybe from a different way, you know, however it works for them, but at the heart of what you're doing, I think at the heart of what I did was I was willing to kind of get rid of whatever wasn't serving me anymore and to make room for maybe something different. And for me, I think what wasn't serving me so well was, were some of these old stories about like, I'm not a leader because, and to invert that and say, well, maybe the definition of leadership isn't inclusive enough. Mm-hmm. And the way I think I realized that, I mean, some of it was coaching, but I have to give more credit to the community that I was taking part in at the time. There were some um, women's design leadership offsites that I was attending. And Which ones? within was oh yeah fantastic mia bloom runs those and she's you know been pivoting obviously to do some you know virtual ways of connecting the community since then but 
I was lucky enough to attend in person. And it was, I think it was just being able, like I said earlier about like one of the key things that drive me in this work is I so strongly believe in the power of bringing the community together and the power of having a sense of belonging, you know, that's a big motivator. And so it was easy for me to be amongst this community because it was very supportive. And I started talking about this reluctant leadership thing as part of this panel where we were talking about authentic leadership. And I admitted to myself that I I haven't been all that authentic because I've just felt that duality between who I felt like I was and what was expected of me. Yeah, that was, that was kind of how it came about. And I made myself give a talk, even though I was terrified. (laughs) That was another story I was able to get rid of, you know, it's like that I could never do a talk that it would bomb, you know, because of of a past really bad experience where I bombed and I swore I was never going to do that again. But I was like, you know, I really want to talk about this. Like, I really want to talk about this. And I found that a lot of people wanted to talk about it too. So that, that's been a great motivator. What locations or location or locations did you, did you attend though within conference? Palm Springs and Mexico. So if you were at the Palm Springs one. Yeah, that was the first one, I think. My wife and business partner was there. Natalie, did you happen to meet her? Oh, I'll have to, she's probably in this photo that that sometimes I show in, in that talk because I talk about that moment when I <laughs> realized that this was a thing, you know, for me. So I if, don't know that I met her. She but... would be the quiet Vietnamese woman who probably didn't talk a lot. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to look. I'm going to have to look her up. Yeah, she she really loved that. Mm. I, something changed with her after she came back from that. It's very similarly. Like, I've always told Natalie, like, man, you are like the best designer I've ever worked with. Like you should, you should really be sharing your knowledge. She's always the kind of person that leads from behind. Exactly. She might only say yeah. like one or two things in a meeting, but it's like best one or two things you ever heard. That's and, great. Uh, she came back from that, that event and she started giving talks and stuff. Go, I mean, maybe not presentations, but like appearing on panels and stuff. It was really quite amazing to see. That's that. great. Um, then, then you understand that much more about like that power that community can have. Yeah. On an individual. Yeah. I, um, those events seem kind of critical. I think for a lot of people, there's nothing that I've, that I've seen where do to do that, but those are the kind of things that I think are important. Like, but I think it would struggle for me is like, I get pretty worked up in how people perceive me. Like I was born and raised in West Texas. And uh, I remember a time when I was living in New York and I was working at a really respectable agency and, I could tell that people like, you know, were picking up on my accent and like almost like poking fun of it. And it it put me in this position where I was scared to talk uh, or I was intentionally trying to change my accent or, you know, I think you got to kind of just figure out what works for you. You know, like for me, like it's easier to kind of hide behind the microphone and do what we're doing right now than it is to talk for other people. They, they can do that. But I, you know, I respect people for doing any of that kind of stuff because like it is really scary. Like, you know, it's scary to talk to anyone to one person or 2000 people doesn't really matter. It's kind of a scary thing. And it's almost like a, a hero in a book or a TV show, right? It's like usually the best leader is like the reluctant leader, right? The one that like (laughs) no one thought like would, would do it. They almost never want to do it, but they're almost, you know, always the the one to do it. Yeah. It was just knowing that I could even 
change somebody's mind to think about themselves differently was really, really powerful for me, you know, because it was like, oh, it's not just my hang up. Number one, it's not just me. I'm not alone. And number two, like, if it helps somebody else to know that they're not alone, that's great. And three, with enough momentum, because there's enough people, maybe there can be change, you know, and it just kind of started snowballing. Um, but really, at the core of it were two things. One was, I had to be willing to just get over my own things, whatever they were, my old stories or hesitations. And, and the other piece was, once again, realizing like, how powerful it is when you combine the community, you know, like what's possible. Okay. I got like a bunch of different questions. I might be all over the place here, but I'm going to try to hit Bring them. it on. I'm going to try to hit some of the things that you've already touched on just so it doesn't, you know, just to try okay. to keep it timely. You mentioned diversity and inclusion. If you look at the two companies that we work in, we like represent like polar opposites, like, you know, a 30 person mm-hmm. design company and a massive global design organization. How does Google see this, this topic, this issue? It seems to be more than just hiring diverse people, right? There's got to be like bigger problems that need to be solved, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like unpack that. And I don't know if it's just a Google problem. I think it's an industry problem at large. So I'm not going to be speaking specifically about how Google, I'm just giving you my unofficial observations, in other words. Um, But I agree, like diversity can't just be a pipeline numbers game. I mean, that's just such a like, I feel like, all right, you know, can we not keep treating this like it's 2010, you know, as like purely a pipeline issue? Like we we must know by now that you can have a leaky pipeline, you can, you can bring people on in, in numbers and be able to measure that. But if you can't retain them and make people feel like they have a sense of belonging and will stay, then it doesn't work, you know? Mm -hmm. So that to me, the inclusion piece, it's really at the core, you know, it's um, about like, do I have that ongoing sense of belonging? It's not a moment in time of when you get hired. It's a much longer game than that, you know, and it's, it's, systemic things you know it's cultural shift it's behavioral change at the at the individual level yeah i'm curious to like when you're hiring on a global scale right in multiple countries i'm also curious about how you connect the dots there right like so for example like let's say google is hiring in nigeria mm-hmm. are the practices open enough to hire talented people without the that maybe people that couldn't afford like the the four-year education yeah, program. Yeah, that that certificate program that's coming out that's that would speak to that oh, for sure because it's like 6 months versus 4 years and a lot it's I don't know $49 a month kind of thing. I, yeah. Don't quote me on that, but it's it's much lower cost and in investment and it will be treated as the equivalent of a 4-year degree in terms of like yeah, looking at qualifications. So I would say that there's room to improve still, but knowing how it used to be when I first joined, like the hiring practices when I first joined, it was definitely not, <laughs> was definitely not leading us towards diversity, you know, cause it was focused on like certain schools, which mm-hmm. obviously, you know, that's, that's not going to be the most diverse cut in certain majors, things like that. So it was just very biased towards a pretty narrow set, you know? So I think there's a lot of different programs in place that try to address different parts of the the problem because it is it's part of the cultural fabric that needs to change right like it's just it's not just one thing that you can just like fix over there it's 
woven in so heavily. And, you know, in terms of like the language that we use or the questions that we may ask candidates or, or, or anything, you know, so that gets to the larger question of a lot of these issues that we're trying to tackle are these long game cultural foundational pieces. You know, it's not just like a quick fix. I've noticed over, over the last three, three, four, five months, especially with COVID, maybe even a little bit before mm-hmm. all this, like I've noticed mm-hmm. that people I know in Austin are being employed by Google Design and they're based in Austin versus the Bay Area. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, like a lot of big companies don't like always like sort of broadcast where their studios yeah. are. I understand why. I'm curious, like if you, if you've noticed any big changes in culture as, Google design has in the U S specifically has branched out from just, you know, like specifically the Bay area or New York city, for example. Okay. Maybe two things. Number one, like going outside of the big city bubbles into other, other places in America, like Seattle or Austin or Portland, for example, how has it impacted the design culture and maybe what some of the challenges are of like, of having like, designers in a place like Austin versus a place like San mm-hmm. Francisco, because they're the cities themselves are very different cultures. Right. Right. Uh, you know, like, I, you know, I'm from Texas, but I, I spent most of, you know, at least 50% of my career in New York city where you have a very different mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you like go to Austin, you know, people go to a place like Austin or Portland because they are ready to slow down. Like, it's not that they're right. They don't care anymore. It's just that they're, you know, like, for example, when someone applies to our company, one of the most common questions is, will I have time to ride my bike? Right. Okay. Not how much money will I make. Right. So uh, I'm just kind of curious, like how branching out in the U.S. has impacted the design work. You know, my observation, you know, and this is, I think this has just been perennially true in general, is that there isn't a monolithic culture you know, and the community isn't a monolith, like it's cut across so many different dimensions. One of them is geographic, right? So, because I noticed like the Boulder office definitely has a way different vibe than, you know, any of the like Mountain View office, right? The main office, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that there's different uh, flavors or aspects, uh, dimensions to the community at large, like, and some of it is geographic, some of it is like, we call it the product area that you work on, right? Because people identify also with that, you know, like we used to work on Google Maps and I strongly identified as, you know, part of that that team, you know, cross-functionally. Other people identify whether they're like a manager or an IC or a researcher or a designer or what kind of designer. So in terms of the geography, I definitely would imagine there's a strong kind of local uh, lens on the community, but I don't think that it might not necessarily be the dominant thing, you know, that colors the community. Some of it, like I said, might also be, you know, infused with whatever other aspects, like what product you're working on or, you know, who your manager, your grand manager Mm -hmm. that you roll up to is and what culture and expectations that person sets. There's just a lot of different dynamics to it. Yeah. I'm just curious, you know, I guess the reason why I ask is because I'm in, like, I live in one of those cities that is like just blowing up. Yeah. And, and people here always have these questions about like, well, am I hireable by a company like Apple or Google? Do I have like what it takes to like do that? Right. And, I'm thrilled uh, that there's more happening in Austin, like in terms of the UX group. That's great. I'm glad I bought a house here when I did, because if I if I was trying to buy a house here now for the first time, it'd be really yeah. difficult. 
Okay. <laughs> but well, that's a downside, but in terms of community, just the community and opportunity, like it's almost night and day here at here versus where it was like eight years ago and maybe yeah. even three years ago. Yeah. There's different maturity levels of company. And you have to imagine a company like Google that's been doing this for a while has a, has a lot more like insights and experience doing this than like in other, other groups that maybe where their teams have an, are on a lower end of the maturity level. Yeah. Like I, I know that I know I was questioning like, why aren't we in Austin? <laughs> like, why don't we have, why aren't we hiring there? And it always comes down to like which product and which, enge- you know, engineering is the biggest function at Google, obviously. So usually offices spring up when there's an engineering population mm-hmm. and then like some of the un- other functions follow. So it, it usually is required that there's some engineering team that needs UX to be co-located there. And then you start to see the hiring. And that's what I imagine happened with Austin. Like whatever products are being built there, that's what's going on. That's cool. And thank you for making Street View. I mean, I can't imagine living without that. <laughs> I didn't that. personally make that. So. <laughs> you part of it. It's kind of crazy cool, like how awesome that is like you know like i would have never thought that people would use that for things like buying a house but like Mm -hmm. when you're buying a house you use street view yeah and uh there's a photo like on our listing on like from our house like after we bought it i guess one of the google vehicles passed by the day we were moving in (laughs) because like there's a this really embarrassing photo of me bending down pulling something out of my hatchback with my butt showing on the you know on on the street view thing and you can request to get it pixelated if it offends anybody. <laughs> so how uh, how has working in this capacity over the years shaped you as a person? How have you grown and developed? When I think about when I was ready to leave, you know, before I made the pitch to do this, because I was at that stage where it was like, nah, I have nothing to lose kind of thing, that that was a kind of a liberating moment right there to just say, like, I'm just going to say what I want. (laughs) I'm just going to propose some crazy thing and, you know, not expect them to actually bite. But when they did, it was just, it was, it was such a, it was like an honor, like, oh, wow. So they believe in me enough to actually want me to try this. And it was a great, I guess, challenge for me. And what else was nice was just moving from this prior kind of more higher stress job, you know, it was like, this big global org that I had to manage and all this, just a lot of stakeholder management. It just, I went from that to suddenly like having all this time on my hands to figure out what we should do. And it was just, I think that that was almost like a necessary purging period for me, you know, so that I could, I could build the trust in myself to do this work And to do things that I think I thought maybe weren't in my wheelhouse or I wasn't great at, I just started kind of proving myself wrong on some of those things. And coincidentally, like we also work on a lot of learning and development type work. So I started collaborating more with folks that like were really knowledgeable about training and, you know, like development of of leadership skills and whatnot. And that was also just a, a... a very nice compliment to the actual work I was doing was actually being able to benefit from it as well and to apply it. Like I could, I could learn these concepts and then apply it in the work. So it felt really gratifying to have that cycle of 
it just felt integrated. And like I said, being able to slay some demons and, and just have a point of view about something and go and talk about it was, was kind of huge for me personally, you know? Thank you. In your opinion, how big does a design org need to be before they hire their first you? (laughs) I don't know, but I think that you don't need much, honestly. Like you can do a lot just with whoever, whatever existing resources you have. You just need people to care enough to collaborate with somebody else who also cares enough. Mike Buzzard calls it his, he has his whole pain and passion model. He explains it much better than I will, but it's, if you have a pain point and you realize somebody else has a very, very similar overlapping or the same pain point and is willing to, is passionate about it enough to want to do something, you can pair up and you can generally actually solve something that neither of you actually owned, but you both had some power to affect. And really that's all we're doing like at mega scale. And we work very much through the community. So if you have a community, you, there you go. There's your resources right there. You, you, it'd be great to have somebody with the um, passion or whatever, like the orchestration skills to sort of bring it all together because some of it can get a little bit like programmatically complex. But I don't know what the magic ratio is of like, once you hit 4,000, get, get one of us. Um, because it's, yeah, you could do something with very little or you could do a lot more with a, a bit more. So I wouldn't say it's a gating factor. It's something that I think about a lot. Of course, it's different in a services business where, you know, you're, the organization is only earning money based on billable hours, right? Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned earlier, like the sort of 80-20 thing. And it's something I'm thinking about, right? Like so you're going to attract the people and you want them to stay like, you know, I'm trying to figure out like, what's that tipping point where you just like, go all in and be like, look, this is a, this is a function. Uh, even if it's, you know, just one person, I've been trying to figure that out. Maybe, maybe, maybe we could have an offline yeah. conversation about that. Maybe you could help me figure that out. Yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, I love brainstorming about stuff like that. And it's not necessarily like the number of people. I think it's also the, the nature of the issues that you're seeing, you know, and then tapping the right people who, like I said, share that pain and passion with you about like, Hey, what could we be doing better there? And it can look different for different nature problems. And that's what makes it kind of so interesting is because you end up with like this crazy matrix of possibilities and collaborators. But yeah, like I, I like to think about overall, what we're trying to do is we're trying to improve the quality of our interactions. So improve the quality of, you know, like if we have meetings or, you know, like if, if you, if you don't even know who, who is in your network, can we facilitate that? Like, can, can we make you have better interactions? Cause they're all out there. They just need connecting. So we're kind of like matchmakers. We're the Yentas of UX. That'll be my new tagline. I've been looking <laughs> for a tagline for what we do. <laughs> what keeps you up at night? Or, I mean, maybe, maybe that's a weird question, but like, yeah. what is it that like, is like right now, like on your brain? Like, I think what's on my brain is what's on everybody's brain is this crazy pandemic that's changed oh, the nature God. of how we're able to come together. And yeah. especially when we need it like so badly, 
what does community look like while we're all individually ensconced in our homes? That's what it is. Yeah. Same with me too. Like I feel, you know, we've been working on this, but you know, I don't want people working, you know, I don't want people feeling like they're alone, you know, even, you know, and even if they are in meetings and stuff and I've been, I've been, that's been driving me a little bit crazy. Like even if they're Mm -hmm. not alone, I I, I worry about that. I worry about people and how they feel and like how they're, they're mentally doing. It's a really weird time right now. And we can't, possibly know the outcome right now yeah. that's that's what makes it so complex you know yeah is that we can only sort of manage slightly what's before us you know while which is interesting because a lot of the work that we're trying to do is <clears throat> like i said so long game because it's foundational culture and we're experiencing just something that we don't even you know we have no precedent for yeah i was at, i mean i was talking to i was actually talking to mike buzzard last Friday, you know, he has these happy hours he does with agency Mm. owners, which is kind of like Mm -hmm. therapy session for agency owners. (laughs) And this, uh, it was just weird because this last one, usually there's like, you know, I don't know, five or 15 people, but this last one was just me and Mike. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he was, we were just talking about like how weird it is to onboard people and try to Mm -hmm. deliver a culture in in an environment where you can't, right? So you got a bunch of you got your old schoolers and you got in between people and you have your brand new people. And like, it's a sort of disparate experience between the yeah. people on the opposite ends and like trying to, you know, it's weird. It's definitely weird for us because we, I mean, we're a small company, but we've grown, we've grown the most in the last three months and we have it in our entire eight year history. Wow. And these new people, you know, like we don't have like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's the same mechanisms to get to know them and, and all that stuff that would you would typically find in, in a, joining a new company and meeting new people. Yeah, I think your observation about like you know length of tenure and coming in totally new it is also interesting because it's hard enough to land at a place like Google. It's overwhelming, but you land and you don't have the advantage of being able to just go to lunch to get mm-hmm. to know somebody. You know, whereas everybody else has established relationships that can be kind of rough. Yeah. And so for a company like yours, it, you know, like you said earlier, like at massive scale, like for us, yeah. you know, the, the last five months has been like, you know, maybe, you know, five or six new people, but I can only imagine in the last five or six months, you guys have added many, 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 many new people. Probably. We started actually doing this one thing that seems to be going pretty well. And it was just like a little experiment. And we're like, okay, that that's a good signal for that's what's needed. More of that. Um, and it was just like, let's just send an email, like we'll get the list of all the, we call them the Nooglers, the Nooglers for each month. And we'll send an automated email that, you know, welcomes them, tells us who we are, gives them some resources. Because like, not only is it terrifying <laughs> to join Google, but in this whole work from home thing, there's like this delay between your start date and when you're actually fully functional with all the systems in place on your computer. and. Yeah that's going to be weird. So we just like, here's some things you can do, you know, and you know, it seems like people are really, really grateful for that. And it's just such a small thing that we can do, you know, but it gives us like that signal that, okay, that's worth investing in. We should make people feel welcome given the situation, you know, what else can we do? Well, speaking of what else can we do if you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would you do next? That's a really good question. I 
don't know that I'd still be in tech. I might just be, I've thought about learning about coaching, but so far I've been, honestly, I've been too lazy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't think I can fit another thing right now, but if I weren't working, I might, I might pursue that or I might pursue just completely non unrelated things, you know, like, uh, things that are analog, like art class, (laughs) which I was doing before we went shelter in place and I would get such great satisfaction out of it, but I can't, I can't do another zoom class. So I've just put that by the wayside for now. Yeah. It's like, uh, no one wants any more virtual meetings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Margaret, for taking time out of your day to, to be here. I really appreciate it. I really enjoy this chat and I hope we can keep it going. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me. Uh, how can people connect with you? I'm on Twitter at Lee. That's like Bauhaus except Frau. And yeah, that's probably the best way to get to me, either that or on Instagram. That's the same handle. Awesome. Is there anything that um, any any Google design community or any websites that people should know about? If you head over to design.google.com, um, you'll see the latest writings there. So that, that would be an easy way to access that. Awesome. Thanks again, Margaret. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hustle is brought to you by FunSize, a digital service and product design agency that works with inspiring teams to uncover opportunities, evolve popular products, bring new businesses to market, and prepare for the future. Learn more at funsize.co. I'm Danielle, a product designer at Funsize. Funsize Ichiban!